Yeah, man. I'm gonna kick it off. It's Friday. I'm I'm excited. All right, awesome. So happy Friday to everyone, whenever you're listening to this. Um, welcome to the hot aisle. My name is Brent Piotti, and with me as always. Brian Carpenter. Mr. Carpenter, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm fantastic. That's good to hear. So this is episode number 44. Um, so we're kind of we're, we're we're nearing the I guess we're we're past the year, but it should be episode fifty-two, but we're at forty-four. But well, hey, what the heck? Yeah, we're way over a year, and we're at forty-four. But that's because babies and real world and things like that. And we're not just going to shove something out there. You know, we've even had uh, episodes that are recorded that just we can't get them out there because they're just too hot to handle. Um, <laughs> so with all that in mind, we're not quite at fifty. We're not even at fifty-two, and we've been doing this for over a year. It's having a lot of fun. Um, let's break the format real quick. We normally do this at the end. I'm going to do it at the beginning because maybe you're still listening for once. Um, we, you know, as we get towards 50, let's get some suggestions in there for people, things that they want to hear. We get a lot of great suggestions and we get a lot of great content out of it. So, you know, let's, let's really break the mold. If you're thinking of something, you think it's a good idea. Don't be scared. Somebody else did not have the idea because frankly, nobody contacts us, but Brent's mom. Um, (laughs) and we need to hear things. So give us some suggestions. We want to hear them. Um, and I appreciate it. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. <laughs> all right, cool. Thanks, Brian. So the the goal of the show today is to to first of all wish a, a very very happy birthday to uh, what is now one year old, and that, that is um, Kubernetes. So that happened yesterday. Um, so now that Kubernetes is is one, we want to learn about who Kubernetes is. We want to learn about its parents and upbringing. And then also, what are the plans for years ahead for Kubernetes? So with us, we have, uh, some would call him the godfather in many respects of, of Kubernetes, but Kelsey Hightower from Google. So Kelsey, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic now that I'm on this podcast. Awesome, man. Well, happy Friday to you. And I know you're stuffed into a closet. Our viewers can't see you, but but we did. But it's trying to trying to get a great user experience and good audio quality. So hopefully we don't keep you in there uh, too long, but uh, we're happy to have you on the show. So Kelsey, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, I'll tell you what, man, I researched the heck out of all of our guests before they get on here. I found a whole hell of a lot of information on YouTube and other articles, but you don't have a LinkedIn. So I know nothing about your background and kind of what brought you to where you are today. So first of all, tell us who you are, what you do, and then how you got there. Cool. So, um, yeah, I'm Kelsey Hightower. I'm currently at Google. Um, my my adventure through tech is kind of storied. You know, I started out of high school with my own computer store. This is back in the day when parents would bring their kids to the shop and say, Dad, I want you to b- let me build my own computer, right? And it's like putting together graphics cards, that whole deal. And uh, my first job was at Google, actually, in a data center in Atlanta. So, you know, being in a big data center full of hardware, I make my journey through web hosting, sysadmin, and I would say the last couple of years, kind of the marquee job spots were Puppet Labs, where I was a full-time developer on Puppet, Puppet Core, you know, configuration management system. Uh, before I left there, ended up running IT there. Uh, moved over to CoreOS, and that's really when I got into like the distributed systems part of this whole thing. etcd, CoreOS, the whole containers deal, and now I'm at Google kind of continuing that on. Very cool. Yeah, we just had uh, Barrick Mishner on from CoreOS, so um, I'm curious. We're going to ask you a little bit about what he's doing out there and see how that how that relates to, to Kubernetes. But I got to ask, man, Google first job. How does someone land a How does someone land a gig like that? 
Uh, Google is kind of a unique place. So this was at a data center. And, you know, the skill set at the time kind of matched what I was into. So back then I was really into FreeBSD, really freaking geeking out on the kernel and, you know, just the low-level details of that as I was schooling up on Unix. So the interview went really well, and that's how you land a, a job at Google. is really skill-oriented. So, you know, it was kind of early on for me. Like, this early 20s. So I just really wanted to know what it would be like to work in a machine. Right on. So you've, you, how long have you been at Google now? Well, actually, this is my second tour back. So the second time around is a lot different just because of, you know, the way I'm coming into Google this time. Uh, it's about six or seven months now that I've made my return back to Google. Okay, right on. And a quick question for you. So um, you worked at, at Puppet, and Luke Canis is the, uh, the CEO out there. Um, he was talking specifically about uh, this notion uh, of the unicorn called the full stack developer. What are your thoughts on that? Being a, being a developer yourself, uh, I mean, there's people that have to do everything. So I think the expectation that we would ever have one person trying to do everything—that's uh, where the unicorn is. Like that, you really can get someone to do a great job at doing those things. But to be honest, it's probably more possible now than ever. If you want to run a database, you can click a button and get someone else to manage the database for you, stuff some data in it. If you want to run an app, you know, Heroku app engine, build your app, toss it in there. So I think this whole idea of a full step developer is really, I just need a developer that knows how to use the full stack. Okay, cool. Well, so to kind of uh, give our listeners an idea, you know, when I did some research on you, man, you are all over the internet in terms of either blog posts being mentioned on podcasts. You've presented at OzCon on DevOps Days, Redis Conf just recently, uh, Days of Docker, CodeConf, GopherCon. Like, you kind of name it, and you've been there. Um, so you're like the, the kind of chief evangelist, practically, for Kubernetes and, and that whole space, man. But um, you talk about this stuff day in and day out. We're excited to have you. And uh, we're excited to learn more about Kubernetes. Even though we hear the name all the time, we really want to dig into, into what it is and how it works. Um, but first, uh, because you've built computers, and just kind of finding this out, it's kind of serendipitous, but uh, we do a segment every week called This Week in Tech History. Uh, and this week in 1968, Intel was founded. Um, and basically, since then, we've all been taking advantage of, of Moore's Law and all the uh, all the ooey gooey goodness and power to uh, drive new technology and greater innovations. Um, so, some quick facts about Intel: It's now a fifty-five billion dollar company, which interestingly is fifteen percent of the global sen- semiconductor business. So, if you kind of do some extrapolation, um, there's over three hundred billion dollars in sales globally of the. Uh, semiconductors. Uh, so I guess my first question for you, then Kelsey, is, is the Google Cloud x86-based? Yeah, I think that's pretty public knowledge, right? You you jump on a machine, we kind of measure and advertise everything is going to be compatible with x86. You know, it's predominantly Linux uh, with some Windows thrown in. And I think that's more about compatibility. You know, most people are writing web applications for the most part on x86, you're starting to see the GPU rise quite a bit. So people are now looking to run some of their workloads on GPUs as well. But I think you're going to see x86 mainly for compatibility reasons. So okay. are, there, are there other innovations out of Intel that you think, that you personally think are, um, I guess, impactful to IT besides the x86 chip, uh, chipset? You know, is there, 
is there anything else that you've kind of said, wow, that was also super cool that Intel made that? Well, I mean, you got to give homage to VXT extensions, right? I mean, without VXT extensions, I don't think virtualization would be where it is today. I remember when VMs first hit the scene and before you had every chip that had, you know, VXT extensions, which is the acceleration for a virtual machine, you know, Intel hit a home run there. And I think that was kind of the start of the cloud for most people. Most innovation comes out when things get faster, easier to use and more secure. And I would think VXT extensions is right up there for Intel. Yeah, it's kind of a, that's almost like a, which one came first? And I, I'm sure we can probably look it up, but like a chicken or egg, was it people starting to make, make virtualization that caused Intel to want to uh, drive better performance and adoption of their chipset against virtualization? Or was it vice versa that they created something thinking that other people needed to leverage it? So it's, you know, it's always one of those things, who's, who's first there or were they talking to each other in the back room somewhere? My guess is that being a hardware vendor, you have to see a big signal before you go to the fab with, with some extensions like that. Because once you throw them in a chip, you can't take them back out, right? This isn't software. So my guess is they saw the trend moving. You know, they saw the success IBM had back in the day. And it was probably a slam dunk. They just kind of had to wait for the right timing. And I think VMware was kind of that right timing. Cool. So we uh, let's talk about some, you know, some some jails, some, you know, Solaris jails, some FreeBSD jails, Linux kernels, all those kind of things. And uh, especially since we have you in a, uh, a Portland apartment jail at the moment, you know, we've got a sub a subset of your apartment <laughs> for you to talk in here. Uh, it seems, you know, apropos. So, um, you know, we've talked about what got you started in tech and now you're here at Google. You're working on the Kubernetes stuff. So what, who do you feel is actually pushing this need for containers? Is, is there a specific spot in the industry or a group of people that's really pushing this need for containers? Honestly, this, this kind of dates back to this desire for speed. And I think that desire for speed is what pushes the boundaries on what we're doing. So if we just go back a little bit and you think about just a normal server, you, maybe you pixie boot it if you're advanced. Maybe you lay down an image, whatever you're doing. So, you know, that's pretty slow, right? That takes a while. Then you get into the virtual machine world where we're taking disk images and we're laying them on top of virtual hardware. And that gets us to a few minutes, depending on your setup. And then if you take that same root image and we throw our application on top and we make a few kind of compromises on maybe we don't need to boot fully, then you get to containers. And really, I think what's driving this is this desire for the application to be the first class citizen, right? People are not thrilled anymore with getting a raw server, SSH into the thing, harden it. All, all that stuff is just like cruft. And what you really want is how fast can I get my app up and running? And I think that's what's pushing this idea for application containers. I got to make sure we're clear. You know, there's containers that we've seen people use in the old VPS world where I'm going to give you a virtual server for like $5. And they were using containers back then. So shout out to OpenVZ. You know, they were rocking containers before people even knew it was a thing. But now where we're at is application container says we don't really need to boot a whole OS. We don't need an init system for every single instance of our app. And that's where we're at right now. So it's the, the application is driving, driving this. That's awesome. And so now as we, as we see this become almost like a, you know, it's one of those things. Once something starts happening, everybody, there's a lot of people who like it. And then the, you get a much larger group of people that like it just from like the butterfly effect of amplification of stories and things like that. So now that the, it's kind of the word in a lot of people's mouths, 
Um, do you feel like the masses that are talking about, oh, I need a container every meeting? It's a, you know, well, we're thinking about containers or whatever. Do you feel like customers really have a grasp on containers? I'm sure there's parts of it, but as a whole, do you feel like customers really have a grasp on it yet? I'm going to say no, only because if I think they did, you would see a lot more adoption than we currently do, right? So the underlying tech has some room to improve and mature. So that's, that's a legit reason not to go to production. But I think what's on the horizon here is the same thing we saw in the shipping industry. Let's take FedEx as a simple example. You walk into FedEx, I don't care if they think your shipping is in a box. They make you put it in another box. And when you put it in that other box, their whole automation chain just goes to work for you, right? I can get you this to the other side of the world tomorrow at 8 p.m., money back guaranteed. So those set of constraints allow us to do some really cool things. Like, look at your mobile device, right? When's the last time you actually thought about installing an app on your mobile device, right? You click on the thing you want. It's self-contained. It starts up, it shuts down, and you delete it, right? You don't worry about all the files, all the dependencies. All that is madness. And look how fast mobile was able to scale across the entire world without people needing to be sysadmins. And it's just a computer. It's just a computer with a better application delivery model. And that's what containers are and will be. So I don't think there's no turning back now that people have a taste of what it's like to run applications and not worry about dependencies and all of this madness. And so is that, I mean, that sounds like you kind of put the onus on everybody. Uh, my question that I was going to follow up on was kind of like, um, do you really feel like ops has a handle on this thing? And maybe, you know, ops is really where the dependencies come in. But as we, as we look at this as a whole, um, with, with dev and ops needing to work together to get this thing working appropriately, do they both need to get better at this? Or is this really kind of uh, ops lagging in this case kind of scenario as far as dependencies and things like that? You know, like living in the world of ops, the honest truth is, is that, look, if you're in ops and let's say you've been doing this for more than 10 years, you've seen the trends come and go. You know, virtualization was supposed to liberate everyone. That turned into a mess. Thousands of machines running everywhere, right? That borns a whole new industry, configuration management, trying to manage all of these one-off virtual machines that are really there to separate application dependencies. And now this container thing comes along and you're like halfway through the transition to virtual machines. And it's not just like ops fault, right? Like ops is dealing with apps that they didn't build. Uh, maybe they would inherited something from someone that was there five years ago. So I think what's happening now is that people are a little bit cautious, right? It's like the last 10, 20 years, everyone's been coming with this magical fix all my problem solutions and they actually don't fix all your problems. They, they may like improve 60% of your problems. You got to roll up sleeves for the other 20%. And the other 20%, I don't think people really know until the rubber hits the road, right? Once you go to production, it's where you start finding the bugs, finding the, the things outside of the happy path. So I think Ops is on board with this, but hey, look at the tools they're currently using. They're like, dude, I ran this thing, it crashed, all my apps went down. My job is to keep the apps up. So as this stuff matures, we can run it in production. So more and more people are starting to be able to run it into production. Okay. On a yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so on the developer side, I think they're all on it. You know, the developers are like, listen, here's my app. It runs on my laptop. That's has always been the story for a developer. It runs on my laptop, right? And I'm not sure what's going on in production. And I think the whole Docker container thing lets that actually be true for somewhat, you know? Somewhat of the problem, you can say this container image 
ran fine on their this OS with this Docker daemon, it should run fine on the other side. Right on. So we've kind of broken down the the, the why of containers and, and and some of the lineage of it. So let's let's dig into what we we came here to talk about. Right, Kubernetes turned one one year old yesterday. So first of all, what is Kubernetes? So Kubernetes is a application management platform, and sometimes I describe it as a framework for distributed systems. Um, if you want a higher level analogy, I would say it's like the Rails for your data center, right? So instead of you trying to figure out all these things about consensus, uh, failover, managing cluster state, schedulers, service discovery, there's so much that goes into a really production high-scale application management platform that Kubernetes just sits on top of your gear and lets you just focus on the app. You describe, hey, I need this app running with this amount of resources you declare that to Kubernetes, and its job is to utilize your resources in a way that your apps stay running, and you get that server utilization up versus just having one VM per application. Okay. So open source project, right, um, created by Google, and we'll kind of dig into the where it came from. But the idea is to, you said, you kind of break it down, deploy, scale, and manage all these different container applications um, I know there's a great story between Kubernetes and Docker, but um, what other container containerization works with Kubernetes? Yeah, right now the goal is to try to be as agnostic as we can, right? So right now the CoreOS folks have been doing a great job of getting Rocket, which is their container runtime engine. Uh, it's also compatible with Docker images, and they have their own spec called AppC. Concepts are pretty much the same. You take your app, all of its dependencies, wrap it up in essentially a tarball, a little bit of metadata. These things can be pulled, verified, and run. So for Kubernetes, the underlying runtime needs to support those three things. Pull an image, run it, um, and adhere to kind of the user's desire. This much memory, this kind of CPU, this networking. Okay. And, and there's the notion uh, in, in reading about this, right? Uh, I'm by no means an expert. I just, uh, I, I'm the... Uh, I mean, uh, I stayed at a, what is it, Holiday Inn Express the other night um, reading this stuff. So the idea is to group containers um, together in, a, you know, so like a, a logical unit, right, for, for management's sake. So um, I guess I try to tie it to something that people are familiar with, but maybe something like a consistency group, for instance. Um, is, is that kind of the concept that, we're, right. that you do in Kubernetes? Yeah, so Kubernetes, the container, is not the lowest level primitive for us, right? It's like the container, what we normally see in production is that some apps have strong dependencies on each other. For instance, if you're writing a, let's say, a Node.js application, you may decide that you would like to use Nginx on top of it. Maybe Nginx will handle your TLS termination, maybe some rewrite rules, rate limiting. Maybe you don't want to code all that up in your, in your programming language. So in that case you would deploy Nginx and your Node.js app together as a single unit, meaning they can't run without each other. There's no need to do service discovery because what you really want is Nginx just to proxy traffic from its front end to your app on the back end over localhost, right? Keep it simple. So I think the right analogy to think about what a pod is for us is very similar to a virtual machine. It doesn't boot any, it won't boot a separate kernel. It's going to boot your app 
You're going to have your own process tree. So that means one or more containers. And we also hook in your volumes, right? So that means if you have any storage, maybe you're running like a database or some stateful thing, you can mount NFS, iSCSI, pretty much anything that you really think you can model with a VM. You can get very close to doing that with a pod, except for the fact we do not boot an init system or run a separate kernel. So are there, is this the idea though of um, when you get something, that sounds very, I guess to me from that description, it sounds somewhat uh, monolithic, right? Like you're trying to take multiple apps that kind of work together and put them in a pod. Um, how does um, microservices or being able to scale that horizontally fit into that same uh, kind of description of what you just said? Right, so the goal is that you should keep your containers small and single purpose. So Nginx is a great rate limiter, TLS termination, reverse proxy. Then maybe you don't want to build an app that has to do all those things. So you keep your app focused on maybe the business logic, right? Take a request, process it, return it back. Use Nginx for what it's good for. So those things are their own independent services. Now, when we start to talk about a microservice, doesn't necessarily mean small, right? So a microservice is just one logical application. And in our case, the logical application just so happens to include, include Nginx. So those things, if you look at it from a black box perspective, in a black box, Nginx, Node.js, and maybe there's another helper program in there, that's just a black box for that one service. And to scale horizontally, well, it just works, mainly because those things are tightly coupled and you would never try to scale them independently because that's just not the scaling model for tightly coupled services. Cool. So you, you've meant, you mentioned multiple different things um, that have brought up a, a thought for me. Um, there was a tweet by Michael Ducey uh, a little while back. I think it was a couple of months back. And he kind of had this whiteboard. He took a picture of it. And I know we're talking about a picture on top of a podcast that never works. Um, but he called it the learning cliff. I don't know if you actually saw this. But on, on one side, he basically put in dev, there's Docker on somebody's laptop and it works. Uh, the cliff is the idea that when you put it into prod, there's Docker. And then the layers above that, the first layer above it was Kubernetes or Mesos. And then he has lib network, rolling deployment, monitoring, you know, config changes, peer discovery, all these other things. So really a huge jump between uh, running a container in dev on that laptop where it works perfectly and then into prod. And even when we take this to the pod you know, conversation, first of all, I don't know if you saw it, but did you agree with his assessment of that cliff? Uh, and if so, what does Kubernetes help with to get things towards prod? So I do a lot of education for folks, and this is like the biggest concern I have with our industry. Most people didn't learn the principles. And I'm not talking CS degree stuff here. I didn't go to college for CS or any of that. When you take an application and you manage it, all of them, for the most part, have a config file. They bind to a port. They get traffic, right? So for most people, they've been doing all of this complexity for decades, right? Developer writes an app on their laptop. They don't have to worry about being DOS, security, any of that thing. Then when you go to production, all of a sudden, networking becomes important. Security becomes important. Disk space, monitoring. Kubernetes and containers did not bring that to our jobs. That was something that you had to do regardless. Now, the reason why I'm saying that people forgot to understand that most of this stuff is just foundational. 
if you take your existing skill set, it maps really well to Docker and Kubernetes. For example, if you're a Red Hat sysadmin, right? One thing you can do to make your apps deployment a little easier to deal with is put them in an RPM. If you put them in an RPM, that gives you a registry, metadata, and the ability to describe your dependencies. Okay? So yum install my app. You bring down everything you need. If you take that same skill set and you apply it to Docker, we're moving from an RPM to a, essentially a tarball, the Docker image format. You put your stuff in there. You get metadata. You push it to a registry. And then you can pull them down and run them. So the core principles, in my opinion, have not changed. It's just that if you don't have those basic understandings in place, you're going to get buried by the fact that people can launch a thousand instances of an app, no problem, right? I talked to a lot of people, and before containers, most people didn't even have centralized logging where they can guarantee that every server comes up, they're getting logs for every app and every system, right? A lot of people still rely on SSH into a machine, grepping through logs, that's, that was a problem you should have solved 10 years ago because syslog was always there to do that. Now you move to containers and you don't have centralized logging, it's going to be a nightmare because you're running out of opportunity and room to brute force. So I think the cliff is just that if you've been faking it until you make it, and this is not a knock on anyone, it's just that every time in our industry when things go faster, and you've been kicking the can down the road. It's going to come back and bite you. And I think that's what people are seeing when they adopt this new stuff. So I'm going to I'm going to try I'm going to try to um, basically restate what you said in in uh, in my terms. So if I were to put my data center together with say bubble gum and toothpicks, and a new technology comes out that um, basically makes my data center move at a faster pace, it's going to expose what's put together with the bubble gum pretty quickly, right? Like the the, the parts of the dam that I've, you know, clogged up with a little bit of gum is going to, you know, come apart a little bit quicker. Exactly. You know, people allocating exactly 32 IP addresses to their production infrastructure. Like, why'd you do that? Well, we only had 20 servers back in the day. So we, uh, we allocated a few more just in case. And then containers show up where every instance gets its own IP address. So you really haven't thought about IP allocation larger than 30-something IPs, containers are going to feel like a nightmare to you because you've never had that responsibility of going a little bit deeper in what your infrastructure provides to your users. So this is making me want to ask you another question, which is a little bit uh, slightly, you know, maybe controversial. We see a lot of this stuff around um, mode one, mode two, platform two, platform three, all these things, and these separate operating models um, where really you kind of have two distinct ways of managing things. Um, in your traditional architecture may or may not work well in a new one unless you properly port it and manage it. Um, and what you're saying to me about your existing infrastructure maybe not being ready, not being built to be ready with good principles, and yet you start doing these new things because the CIO magazine says everybody should run in containers and things like that. Um, it sounds to me like it might be safer or even more intelligent to just go ahead and deploy a a well-built new infrastructure with proper principles instead of trying to go fix the old stuff and then simply rationalize things over and really manage them with two different sets of tools and skills where basically, you know, data traverses appropriately, you know, well, well-documented APIs, things like that, but otherwise they run separate. That's what it sounds like might be better. But then you talk about having two separate teams and stealing resources from one and the other. So when you look at that kind of traditional app management, 
and this modern stuff and kind of how it exacerbates um, kind of bad or poorly de deployed infrastructure, does it call for possibly redeploying with modern, basically modern techniques in a new net new infrastructure? Absolutely not. <laughs> Here's the thing. Like, let's say you really want to adopt containers, okay? If you just sit down and say, let's think about what we're saying first, all right? So the first thing we're saying is that maybe we want a better way of packaging our app, right? So let's just start there. Let's be pragmatic. Let's not jump off the cliff. So if we want a better app packaging, then let's talk about how much of Docker do we really need to use. We can, we can run our apps in a way that there's no other changes required. We can say, you know what? When we deploy our containers, we're turning off network isolation, and we're just going to bind to the hosts and deal with port conflicts like we've always been doing. So that, that means we don't have to come in with a fancy container network. None of that, right? We can actually do other things where we say, you know what? Even though Docker has some really nice logging infrastructure in place, we're still going to have our app send everything to syslog like we're already doing, right? So I think you can actually just say, look, what, what are we actually ready for? If we want a better app packaging mechanism, let's just use that small bit of Docker just to put the app in a very consistent and deployable way. And if you're using Puppet, Ansible, or Chef, keep those around and say, instead of it, ensure this RPM is installed, ensure this Docker image is installed, but run it in a very similar way that you would run your normal applications. So you don't have to like overdo it because I lived in that world in financial where it took me three years to really modernize everything and I kind of started in a very pragmatic place, right? Start with centralized logs. I took all the Java jars and XML files and I bundled them in RPMs and it took a long time to do that. I'm not saying this is going to be overnight. That took like eight months. It was a lot of education, a lot of hard work and going in there and updating build plans and slowly rolling things out. So in my opinion, I think any infrastructure um, can adopt the sets of technologies that make sense for them. And once you make that first step, centralized logs, maybe containers for packaging, and you get that under control, you start paying back a little tech debt, then you look at Kubernetes and say, all right, maybe we can take our infrastructure to the next level. This all or nothing thing just kind of makes everyone a little bit crazy a little bit. Like everyone's trying to go 10,000 miles per hour without understanding what they're getting themselves into. I think that's fair. So um, you, you mentioned it, right? It's like we can start here, start small. Um, you know, Maybe it's using a few things from, from, from the Docker ecosystem, and then you can layer on Kubernetes. So let's really dig into where Kubernetes came from and then the problems that Kubernetes is trying to solve. So where did it come from? Why was it developed? Um, so, you know, I wasn't there in, I guess, the early days of Borg, but internally, Google needed to run applications at an extreme scale to kind of keep up uh, with their infrastructure needs. So if you think about the story behind Google, Google didn't come up on, like, mainframes and very expensive hardware. It was a lot of cheap boxes that fail and are going to fail all the time. So Google uh, was kind of forced into this whole, we have to use this stuff around distributed systems, right? That's the only way we're going to scale up as fast as we need to to be competitive and also do it on very cheap hardware. So if you're going to run cheap hardware, then the trade-off is sometimes you're going to have to run on more sophisticated software. 
So this is where Borg comes from, right? So this idea that we would have kind of this cluster-wide supervisor that would automatically make sure that our apps are running on the best fit, you know, the machine that's like the healthiest, has the most memory and CPU free, also making sure that if an app or a machine were to die, that we would move those workloads to another machine. And all of those things around distributed systems was kind of baked into Borg over time. Now, once you get there, normally what Google does is we put out white papers, right? We say, hey, here's how Google has been managing our applications at scale. We've been using this thing called containers. We've been using schedulers. And that was a while ago. Then it kind of made sense to say, we want to also figure out how we can improve on Borg. And a lot of people took that journey internally. And then at some point in time, the industry caught on to kind of like what the model was, application packaging. So when Docker hit the scene, it really made sense to make that next iteration of Borg be an open source project instead of just a white paper. And so is there, uh, as far as your environment today, um, has Borg basically become Kubernetes and the things that people are publicly contributing um, is you know Google doing what open source does best and benefiting from both what people are contributing as well as what they're contributing, or are they continuing? Are you continuing to run something even you know separate just because of you know your environment still a little bit more unique than just the open source version? Yeah, Borg has been around for a long time, right? More than ten years now. So you just can't port Borg to Kubernetes. In Kubernetes, we've done some things that we think are better. You know, like every application gets its own IP address, network namespace. We think that's a huge improvement. We like the idea of this unified API. There's a lot more restrictions on what you can and can't do um, that provides a little bit more consistency. So Kubernetes is kind of being built in a very clean environment with the help of the community and also leveraging some open source tools like etcd and Docker for the container runtime. So given that, what we use Kubernetes for right now is it powers our commercial container service on Google's cloud offering. Now, some Googlers decide that we want to run some things on our cloud. Some people run things on Borg. But the idea here is that Kubernetes is what we would all hope would be the successor to Borg. And one day, all Googlers should be able to use Kubernetes for everything. Okay. And so let's, let's look into Kubernetes a little bit more and kind of see some of these features and what these features mean. And we kind of have a list. Maybe it's easier if you want to go ahead and tell us what those, those basics are. We've right, we've right them off in different answers, but um, if you have a patented answer of, hey, these are the features and these are kind of what they mean. Otherwise, I'll go through kind of the feature list that we've documented. So whatever works best for you. I'll start with something short and quick. Kubernetes is really only, you know, two things really, right? You have this idea of a pod. Here's a list of containers with their volumes and their resource requirements. Okay, you, you write that down, you can describe it, and you push it to an API server that validates and checks that that schema is correct. Once we have that in place and the cluster state is in sync, we have these worker nodes that attempt to read those specifications and run them. Okay, now to fill in the blanks, we could have people manually taking these pods and assigning them to individual machines, but that would be just fail, right? Like that is not what humans should be doing. So then we bring in a scheduler and a scheduler takes those pod definitions and places them on the right machines. But what happens when those pods die? Well, the scheduler's job is not to figure out 
how many should be running. So then we introduced this concept of a replication controller. And all that does is let the human say, I would like to have a template of those pods. So instead of pushing pods directly to the API server, you're going to push a controller, a deployment or replication controller, depending on what you need. Let's just focus on a deployment. So a deployment also has a rolling update strategy. So the deployment, you can say things like, I need three copies of them of my app running with this version number. You submit that to the cluster, and then it will create pods for you automatically based on that template, which will then be picked up by the scheduler and placed on machines. All right, and then the last thing is service discovery. Once we're placing all of these applications all over the place, we have different controllers that run in the background that group them by their labels and give them stable IP addresses. So if I run my front-end application and I create a service object for it, we'll locate your front-end based on labels, give it a static IP that runs at the cluster level, and also a DNS entry. So that way, other components in the cluster can communicate with that service without knowing anything about its topology or the number they're running. That's what Kubernetes is at the very highest level. Okay. So um, you, you talked about this notion of a pod, right? And a pod holds a container. Um, through my reading, it sounds like there's the ability to hold multiple containers in a pod, but you shouldn't. Um, you, sh so you should. You should. You should when there's tight coupling. So example, your front-end web service and its database should not be in the same pod. Okay. Because okay. you're going to want to scale your front end horizontally, but not necessarily your database, right? So those should not be in the pod. Now, if your front end doesn't know how to terminate its own SSL, so you want to bring in Nginx or HAProxy to do that for you and then just reverse traffic back to your app, those should be in the same pod because the user doesn't really care about Nginx being in front of your application. And you can scale both of them together horizontally. That's kind of the high-level rules around what goes in a pod and what doesn't. Okay. And then you brought up namespaces. So namespaces, groups, services, and pods, and replication controllers, and, and volumes into, a, again, another logical construct. Um, and then it provides some level of isolation. Um, what else beyond that, or does that kind of sum it up? Well, you also have the resource management. I think that's kind of the pro mode of Kubernetes. Right When you start to really get into the granularity, like this app gets 100 megabytes of RAM, you know, one-tenth of the CPU, and that allows the scheduler to, to play Tetris, right? And it makes it a little bit smarter about making sure that apps get their resources allocated to them, and we don't overcommit a, a server that will never be able to actually run their apps at their full SLAs. And once we have something like that in place, it also helps with capacity planning. You know, so that, that resource stuff is really where you start to say, that's where you start to get to game-changing territory. I think Google just put out a paper about re reducing our power usage dramatically, right? And that translates to real dollars. And being able to do that is grouping servers on the right machines, being able to power down other machines if you need to. There's a lot around all of that stuff that uh, resource management um, does for you. Does resource okay. does resource so, management do real quick? Does yeah. resource management do life cycle as well? Like, does it do, um, you know, hey, this thing needs to only live for seven days, or it's been on, we need to validate if it needs to continue to live, things like that. So the cluster state controls that life cycle. So 
if you want like a job that only runs once until completion, we have a jobs object that says, hey, kick off this job and maybe run five copies of it in parallel and then shut them down when they complete. Uh, a lot of apps are long running. So the life cycle there would be, you know, run version 1.0 of my app. I want three copies. And then you can come around and say, you know what? It's time for 2.0 to roll out. You make one change to one config, push it to the cluster, and it will do a rolling update for you, shutting down things in a way where you're not dropping traffic on the floor and shutting your apps down cleanly if they handle all the lifecycle hooks that Kubernetes exposes. Hmm. So I... This was not what I was going to ask, but when you brought up the, this whole lifecycle thing of run the run this this job once, um, it leads me to this whole serverless thing. So you know, functions as a service is is that in the same vein right there, or is it completely different? No, it's in the same vein. So so now that we have a faster way to run apps, that's where the innovation starts. Anytime you can speed up a mundane process people start thinking of use cases that were just not possible before. So imagine trying to have a function-type service with VMs, right? Five minutes to launch a new VM, run your function one time and delete it. That's, that's not going to work. But now that we're down to milliseconds all day, I'll run, a, I'll run an app for 100 milliseconds and shut it down because the overhead is just so low. Huh, that's cool. So as I'm reading through this children's illustrated guide to Kubernetes, um, you know I'm I'm seeing a lot of, of a lot of layers and wrappers, right? It kind of it looks like an onion. Um, are these things um, are they out of band? Meaning, like if one of them fails, does the the service and application stay up? How do they? Um, how, what happens if something fails, or is it just like pop up another instance that does that specific function within the Kubernetes? Um, you know, service, if you will. Yeah, so this is a really well-architected distributed system, right, based on experience. This isn't something we were, like, trying to figure out. So the API server stores all of its state in etcd. It's the only component that talks to etcd. The agents that run on your machines, you know, the, the things responsible for running your apps under Docker, those things, if they're disconnected from the API server, telling them essentially what to do, uh, they just keep running what they have until they hear otherwise. Okay, so that allows the API server to be taken down. The scheduler also runs as its own process. So if you take down the scheduler, then all your other workloads will just be pending. So anything created by a user will just pending until the scheduler shows up again. And every component in Kubernetes kind of works this way. They all coordinate through the API server. So they have a very well-defined rendezvous point and they can all be taken down for normal maintenance without having a huge outage window. And so is there, uh, you know, with all the self-healing, is there a, uh, maybe it's a future or things like that, is there the concept of um, highly available schedulers and uh, even self-healing of, oh, you know, I've got certain other services that are not running inside my Kubernetes cluster and I need to bring those back up or restart them or notify or whatever it is that's uh, necessary? Yeah, so in Kubernetes, this, the, the key part here is the desired state. So in Kubernetes, you don't run a container. You don't say, Kubernetes, run this container right now. What you're doing is say, Kubernetes, I would like to have three of these containers running at all times. That is what we store inside of the cluster manager itself. And then all the components that run in separate processes, they do what it takes to keep that to be true. So if a node goes down and your app was running there, well, we only have two out of three. That means we need to create another copy of your app 
and the scheduler will schedule it somewhere else to fulfill your desired state. And that's the key difference to understanding a lot of these platforms that are built on imperative run it right now actions and Kubernetes that is truly based on desired state. Okay. And so when we talk other things as far as uh, availability, you mentioned volumes early on. Uh, and, you know, part of this is storage orchestration. So uh, with Elastic Block and Ceph and some of those things, uh, is, there a, is there a portion of Kubernetes that cares about um, persistence in the container area? Or is that something that's uh, left to another tool or another thing that you might add on as part of your entire kind of layer cake? Yeah, so Kubernetes does have built-in support for like managing volumes. So you create a container or a pod. You can describe all the volumes that should be attached to that pod. So if you have a MySQL pod, you can say, hey, run this version of the MySQL container. Take this persistent disk from my cloud provider and mount it at varlib MySQL, right? And then Kubernetes will do the right thing when it schedules that particular pod. It will first go and make sure they can mount the volume to the host, put it in a way, uh, mount it up, format the file system, and inject it into your running uh, pod or container, right? So that's how we manage lifecycle. Now, that's deployment and setup, right? And if you think about it, what Kubernetes is doing is what every cloud provider does today, except for you don't really deal with the low-level details. When you create your virtual machine, in some cases, a volume has to get attached to that hypervisor, attached to your virtual machine so you can have a root file system, right? We're doing this every single day. And in that world, if you want to replicate data, we have two virtual machines with two different volumes that write data to each other, okay? Kubernetes does exactly the same thing. So this is why uh, we do have the ability to do stateful applications. What people are hoping for, though, they're hoping for like a managed database service, like you would found from a cloud provider. And that's not what Kubernetes does. You know, like if you're used to something like RDS or Google's Cloud SQL, those things are fully managed, backed up, upgraded, managed by some ops team somewhere. Kubernetes, if you want to do that, you're going to be the ops team, you're going to do backups, and you're going to do all that work. So Kubernetes just makes it probably easier to deploy a database, but it doesn't take away the operational duties required to run a database. And that's where people get tripped up. And since we're talking about storage uh, and specifically kind of uh, highly scalable and, you know, um, you know, permanent, you know, storage when, you, you know, and as being part of a, a core OS alum, what is your, what are your thoughts on kind of the announcement of the open sourcing of Taurus from them? That's a lot of ambition right there, man. You know, storage systems are no joke, right? Because if you lose someone's data, there is zero coming back from that. Like once you kind of become shaky on the data front, that, that's kind of a wrap for that file system. So it's very ambitious. I understand the need to innovate in that area. This is what I think CoreOS does so well. So just like every other storage uh, file system out there, they're going to have to earn their stripes over time. And it's so early, there's really no comment I can even have. I've never used it. I don't know anyone that's used it. So CoreOS traditionally has done a great job when they tackle some of these hard problems. You know, I would probably count on them to do a good job the same way they've done with etcd, CoreOS, the operating system. You know, they got a lot of smart people that know what they're doing. Um, but I will say this, storage is one of those things, if you ask me today, I would totally figure out a way to like separate my stateless 
and stateful stuff, mainly from practicality reasons. I worked in financial, and I know what it's like to have auditors and audit processes that say, you can't run a database server next to any random app that you choose to throw at a machine. And in those worlds, you're going to have to isolate and partition that stuff off anyway. So I usually try to tell people from a pragmatic standpoint, separate those two until you really get a good grip on managing your database end-to-end in a fully automated way. Okay. And, and one of the other features that I saw, and, and I know what the answer is to this question, so it's a bit loaded, but um, for secret and configuration management, um, should I bake my configuration files into my container? No, <laughs> not at all, man. That's like driving your car into the ocean. Like they, it's not a boat. Um, I think this idea of baking configs in an image is kind of holdover for what people used to do with their AMIs on Amazon, right? I remember those days where you just wanted to throw your app in an auto-scaling group so you would just like bake an AMI that had everything in it because you didn't want to have some deployment process fail while your app was trying to boot up, right? And re- re- that's back to that speed thing again, right? Since we were slow, we tried to overly optimize by doing, uh, I would say, some things that were less than optimal. Kubernetes tries to make this so much nicer. Actually, this is how I knew Kubernetes was the real deal when I saw the fact that there was an object separate for managing your secrets and configs. So what that allows you to do is not try to figure out how to rewrite your app to take every configuration from environment variables, uh, rebake containers, because that's going to turn into sprawl. What Kubernetes will allow you to do is have the people that are in charge of configuration, it could be the same people, describe the config files, whether that's just, hey, here's the full entire config file. Maybe you do break them into very granular key value pairs. Username is equal to blah. Whatever you want to do, Kubernetes will allow you to describe. Again, there goes that declarative thing again. And then inside of your pod definition, you get to specify how those secrets and configs are utilized. For the lift and shift stuff, meaning your app just needs to really read that big XML file from the file system, with Kubernetes, you can say, go get secret by name, take its contents, write it into this location on disk, and the app can proceed to start and find its config where it, where it would expect it to be. And on the other side, if you do have like a 12-factor app where everything's coming from environment variables, Kubernetes makes it super trivial to say each secret item is its own key value pair and give you the ability just to map those to environment variables. And that has, that's been a real game changer in terms of building these portable container images that work from developer's laptop through production without modifying them under some special case. And so back to production again, I've heard you say, in my, in my opinion, I've heard you say that um, container ecosystems um, from the specific vendors leave some things on the table that haven't been solved yet, right? So most of them aren't like, boom, ready for production as far as containers by themselves, like the Docker ecosystem by itself and things like that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think what they leave on the table, though, is education for their users. I mean, we went so quick into just products everywhere, like container networking. Container networking is the one that just makes me fall over every single time. Container networking is like, listen, you have a bridge, okay? You have five machines with a different bridge on each machine. Each of them have their own subnets, okay? If you put on your normal networking hat, 
This tells you this is a great solution for a router. You take the host IP, you make that the nest hop for the subnet. You're done. Finished. How the internet works. You've been doing this forever. But for some reason, everyone forgot that. And then we started to introduce container networking solutions that essentially tried to do that for people. And it was so distracting for almost a year and a half where no one knew what the real requirements were for container-style networking. Nothing actually changed. It's just that people try to force a bunch of new tools that didn't respect the principles of production. Most people don't have it where they can just add an overlay network to their infrastructure without causing a bunch of traffic slowdown. And a lot of those solutions were just not very mature. They were just written you know, weeks ago, and then people are trying to run them in production. So I think that's where the maturity part has to really tighten up a little bit. And so does, in your opinion, does uh, Kubernetes solve that production cliff? Um, you know, does it basically poof, deploy Kubernetes, put your containers in there, properly document it and format it in a way that makes sense and problems are solved. You're done. We, that's exactly what we try to do, to be honest. Like we get a lot of bad rap for being hard to install. We have these five separate binaries. They run separately because we need them to be HA. We do think about the hard production use case of what about networking? What about service discovery? What about DNS? What about all those intricate details? We put them front and center, and Kubernetes exposes all of them to the user. So we try to do that in a way where you have to learn a little bit to kind of get going. But once you're there, I always say Kubernetes has a really great day two experience. You know, some tools have a great, oh, I'm up in 10 minutes. Wow, I saw something. This is awesome. But then day two, day three, you're like, oh, man, what am I going to do about configs? What am I going to do about service discovery? All those hard problems just hit you in the face, and you're trying to, like, scramble to stitch something together. Whereas Kubernetes, we think about from top to bottom, everything that you're going to have to do in production, kind of the way we had to across all the application architectures at Google. So we're trying to put all that industry expertise, and it's not just our expertise, right? There's tons of people with sysadmin backgrounds, developers that are contributing the same experience to Kubernetes. So we're trying to encapsulate all of that. So when you install Kubernetes, you get kind of the best of all worlds from all people. And so, uh, you know, you're telling me, you know, Kubernetes solves my problem from productions. It might be a little difficult, um, but the, you know, the challenge is worth it in the end. Um, and then, you know, as a consumer, I'm going to say, well, sure. I mean, you know, you're Google, you have unlimited engineering resources, so it's easy for you to do this thing. And everybody who works there can solve, you know, really crazy, complex uh, billboard problems to get their jobs, right? Like, so I'm not that. I'm a typical, you know, enterprise, or maybe, you know, I'm, I'm some large financial, like you've mentioned. Um, y- y- you have other examples. We've seen things like Viacom and eBay and those that use it. Again, close to unicorn just because of the size of the corporation, right? eBay has one of everything is what I always think. Cause every time somebody talks about something, eBay's using it. So my question for you is, as you've been out there in the field, can you give us some examples of kind of real world, like working Joe it that's leveraging Kubernetes and it really has changed their world. So I think when we start to talk about the different scale levels, Either your company is under intense pressure to be competitive and you almost have no choice but to look at anything that comes out that looks like it's going to help you be a little bit more competitive. Like Netflix jumping on the cloud so early what made them so competitive, right? 
And I think some of these companies you just named are also in the same boat where they got to do more with less, full stop. So they're willing to put in the time, skill up, and get on board with some of these things. Now, on the flip side, if you are traditionally in a world where you just gave VMware, Cisco, EMC a large check and they took care of it for you, then I would tell you that for the most part, Kubernetes isn't quite there yet where there's enough vendor coverage for everything you want to do with Kubernetes, right? So if you're, and, and this is just a different role, right? Like if you're focused on your business and not being a distributed systems engineer, you kind of rely on the vendors to package it up nicely. So VMware is doing a good job right now of packaging up Kubernetes in a way that will make it work seamlessly with all of their tools, vCenter, all the EMC storage, all that stuff will be taken care of by the people at VMware. They know what they're doing in that area. What they're going to do is just give people the opportunity to experience the Kubernetes API on top of a very solid infrastructure. We're seeing the same thing for OpenStack. Red Hat is doing a great job with OpenShift. They're going into the enterprise and saying, you know what? Kubernetes, pods, controllers, all of that stuff is a little too low level. Those customers want workflows. They want to say, I wrote this app, I push it to my repository, and you do a bunch of magic underneath the covers, and you give me this Heroku-like experience. So we see this from a Prenda. So there's many facets to Kubernetes. So if you're in an enterprise shop and you just don't really want to get into the weeds of this stuff, there are plenty of vendors currently out, Apprenda, Red Hat. Um, you'll see a couple of others, Tectonic from CoreOS folks. They're really focused on install the thing and use it. If you're eBay, SoundCloud, you know, some of these companies that are looking to customize, maybe you're a cloud provider as well, you really want that raw Kubernetes experience so you can kind of put your layer on top to really have that super customized uh, experience that you just demand for your software. So uh, Kubernetes 1.3 was just released. Let's talk about some of the some of the um, upgrades or the features that came out with, with 1.3. So 1.3, uh, we're, we're really cautious about our APIs. So we have this phase where we go through alpha, beta, and then stable. Once they go stable, we can't change it, right, without a huge uh, reason or push from the community. So right now in alpha, we have what we call pet sets. We've been watching this pattern of how people have been trying to deploy applications that traditionally don't really work well in a clustered environment. Many of your data stores fall in this category. MySQL, Postgres, right? They, they really need stable identities. They need a way where, you know, even when they move around, they seem like they're fixed assets. So we have this thing called pet set. So pet set, pets versus cattle. If you have a stateless application, you can kind of get rid of them. Everything's okay. But pets, you know, the things you name, your database, it can't go away. You lose your data. So pet sets kind of give us a new way of saying, hey, you can scale horizontally up and down, and you're guaranteed to have a somewhat fixed identity for your things like your databases. So this is really great for people trying to deploy stateful stuff. So that's alpha and 1.3. Uh, we also focus a lot on performance. Uh, we can't talk about all of our public customers right now, but in GKE, so the hosted open source Kubernetes, where we run it on the behalf of our customers, the demand that they put on Kubernetes means we always have to keep in mind performance. So the things we've been doing is just cutting down our scheduling times, 
making sure that every API call returns in sub-second, no matter how many pods you have running. Uh, you know, we've been scaling that up. So we go from like, we started, I remember everyone dinged us for this. A couple of years ago when Kubernetes came out, we said, hey, we only support it on 100 nodes, right? And people were like, oh my God, this, this is complete garbage. How come you can only run on 100 nodes? But at the time, we focused on getting the API out the door, and then we fine-tuned it as we went on. Now we're at well over 2,000 nodes, meaning 2,000 nodes running to their capacity and every API call coming back in sub-second. And that's a huge requirement that we put on the system. So 1.3 sees tons of improvements in that area. Auto-provisioning of storage. So when you create a pod and you don't quite know what the name of the volume is, and you don't care, we can automatically provision that stuff and make sure that it's um, allocated to your instance uh, going down uh, you know, as it moves around the cluster. And the last thing is federation. So Kubernetes itself attempts to make managing large groups of machines like managing a single machine. Okay? Federation attempts to make managing a large group of Kubernetes clusters like a single Kubernetes cluster. So when I create a service object in a federated Kubernetes cluster, that service is propagated across all my clusters that are part of the federation. And that allows some really unique behaviors around having one app in one data center, being able to do a lookup on another app in a different data center, and preferring the closest app to a region or zone. So this is kind of game-changing stuff here for people that we're just kind of rolling out the first features of in 1.3. That's really interesting. So does that also allow for things like being able to have uh, different availability zones, either now or in the future, where you could say, uh, run my app, package it, do those kind of things. And then also, I want to run it in three different clusters, which have to be in different uh, geographic regions. Yeah, so that's the idea there. So I think uh, maybe as of a year ago, you could have always done that, right? So you could actually just decide to put your instances in various zones, give them labels like, hey, these servers are in, in, in you know, region X, this one's in region B, region A. Then when you deploy your apps, you can have them prefer nodes in a specific region by just using those labels, okay? But then we started to formalize that a little bit more. So now when you deploy Kubernetes, since Kubernetes itself is cloud aware, so if you're running on like Amazon, Azure, or Google's compute platform, we can actually derive a lot of data from metadata of a cloud instance and label it for you. So we can say, oh, I'm running in this particular zone. And those will automatically be added to your node. And when you have federation into the picture, then things can get a lot smarter, right? So the design is still up in the air. Should we allow you to say a new object type that says I want a globally available application and I want nine copies? And then we go in there and we break that up into three different clusters. You know, there's all kind of ways that we can go about doing this. And also nothing's stopping you from building your own controllers that do exactly what you want, given the fact that now you have a single place to manage multiple clusters. Sounds, yeah. Sounds fun. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, talking about this, learning about it, it's, it's awesome. But I'll tell you that it seems like the community is is embracing it, right? It's been coming up more and more lately. I went to uh, your GitHub or Kubernetes GitHub this morning, and what I saw, and these are just kind of some stats from it, but there's about 5,000 forks, 16,000 stars, 33,000 commits, 900 contributors, and 
230 years of effort by the community have been put into Kubernetes. Uh, pretty astounding. So talk to us quickly about the, about the community that surrounds uh, Kubernetes. So the great thing for us is that Google is not the only people that understand this stuff. And I think you're seeing it. Those stats you just listed off, that comes from the Red Hats, the Squares, Ebays, all of these companies have people with this kind of expertise. And what they now have, and in my opinion, this is like the Linux kernel of distributed systems, right? We have a lot of the things that you're going to need to extend it, build on top. It's very open. Google has other ways of making money, and it doesn't have to be on Kubernetes directly. So what that does is it opens us up to be really good stewards on the technology share our expertise, and also make sure that the community has a place to rally around. So I think that's what you're seeing here is that people that know what's up look at Kubernetes and say, this is it. This is what I need to be a part of. And if you want to, you can actually build a business on top of Kubernetes and be pretty successful because we don't hide anything. Yeah, challenge accepted. Um, so do you, do you know who your um, largest non-Google contributor is? Is it a corporation or individual or do you happen to know that? By far, it has to be Red Hat. Okay. You know, day one, Red Hat was just in there feeding ideas. And Red Hat doesn't get enough credit, and I wish they did. You know, Red Hat is responsible for a lot of the, you know, I would say end-user operational stuff. If I'm correct in remembering, I think namespaces come from Red Hat. A lot of the volume work comes from Red Hat. You know, Red Hat does a lot around workflow with their OpenShift product, you know, their PaaS that sits on top. You also have companies like Deus. Deus is really instrumental into like a package manager for Kubernetes called Helm that allows people to, instead of creating all these services, pods, and all those things, you can now say like Helm install uh, Cassandra, and that will bring down all the Kubernetes configs you need to get it up and running. So you're starting to see kind of a diversity of contributors. Some people focus on the user experience. Some people are really focused on making their own product better, and that means contributing to Kubernetes directly, just like you see in the Linux kernel, right? If you're going to ship a, a distro, a lot of that work has to be fed upstream. And this is what you're seeing with Kubernetes. A lot of people rely on Kubernetes for either their commercial business, their own use case, and that work flows upstream to make sure that it stays around for the long haul. That's super cool. Um, so you, I wrote this down at the very beginning. We are, we're near the end, but I have one question. Uh, you mentioned that you kind of really cut your teeth on FreeBSD. Um, and I have a good buddy who um, is a is a Linux you know wizard, and I talk to him all the time. And he was telling me that in his opinion, uh, FreeBSD is one of the best ways to really learn Linux because of the documentation and how how much documentation there is around FreeBSD. So I'm curious, just from your experience, you know, do, how do you do you agree with that you know assessment, or what puts you in FreeBSD versus all the other variants out there that you could have picked up? I think he's spot on because the, the nice thing about FreeBSD, what, what made me gravitate to it is when I was learning this stuff back in the day, I wanted the thing that was closest to like the AT&T original idea for Unix. So looking at that tree, FreeBSD was a little bit closer to the root than any of the other projects. So I started there. And the nice thing about FreeBSD, there's only one FreeBSD. There's many Linux distros and package managers and all these things, but there's only one FreeBSD. So you can tell that all, all the effort around FreeBSD is concentrated in a single place. And it just didn't have a bunch of whiz-bang UIs and GUIs and vendors around it. 
So if you want to run FreeBSD, I mean, you have to work, man. Like make world, make build, you know, compiling your stuff. I don't even know why I was compiling half of it. I think I just kind of got excited by hearing the fans turn on my machine, right? It's like, man, it must be doing something. It's hot. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun. It's, uh, so the reason we were talking about it really recently is because a friend of mine, um, uh, so my friend Tommy as well as uh, Tommy Trogdon and another guy, Brian Berkeley, who we work with, they were deploying uh, Minecraft in containers with persistent storage using uh, a thing called Rexray that's also open source uh, against Scale.io. So um, all inside of containers and really giving persistence to Minecraft inside of a container. And so I was wanting to try to copy that at home. Um, but I always like to challenge myself. And I, again, I have this thing where I'm like, Ubuntu is like the, it's almost like the Windows 95 of Linux to me. It's, so it, I'm trying to have a challenge. <laughs> and I run CentOS at home, but I, but I don't, I was thinking about running FreeBSD to try to ch do that thing. Um, and that's kind of what brought that conversation up. So it's nice to, nice to get some affirmation. So that is, I'm going to go do that, uh, that project. I challenge everybody else to go do it too, because my kids actually like me now that I built a Minecraft server. Um, so, I, Kelsey, I appreciate your time. If you don't have anything else to talk about FreeBSD, we're going to go ahead and uh, tell people how to get a hold of you and, and let you out of here, man. Cool. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I don't know. Twitter's become my preferred platform. My DMs are wide open. If you have a Kubernetes question, I don't care who you are, what your title is. I will do a hangout with you, given time, and I will walk you through whatever your problem is, uh, mainly because I just want you to succeed and uh, kind of enjoy what I think is kind of the future of how we're going to be doing things. Whether it's Kubernetes for the long haul or not, I think the skills that you're going to gain right now are, are totally worth it. So hit me up on Twitter. I'm usually very active there. I try to share what I can and, and catch me at a conference or two. As you guys know, I seem to be like the Samuel Jackson of conferences. I'm going to be there. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it seems like you are, you're ubiquitous almost at conferences and, and videos and things like that. Very super approachable uh you know even i dm'd you 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 weren't following you responded in minutes and we're on the podcast in you know the like the, literally the first available date on brent and i and you even made yourself available after i had to reschedule you like a jerk so you're awesome for that uh so it's at kelsey hightower on twitter on github um also i see uh youtube there's a kubernetes.io slash community is that something you curate or is that a whole group of people or how's that go yeah, there's a whole group of people that curate that stuff. So Kubernetes has tons of content. Um, I try to publish all kind of content for people. My thing now has been prototypes. I really, instead of talking about this stuff, I really like to show people exactly how it works, whether that's writing a custom scheduler and walking through how you can do it yourself and publishing tutorials. My, my only goal, really, is to make sure that people understand the, the stuff for themselves. And that comes from videos doing code walkthroughs or whatever, but that is like my number one goal. So if the only takeaway is that I really want you to, to learn this stuff because one day we'll probably be working together. Sounds like fun. So what do you think of, uh, what do you think of me trying to take Tommy and Brian's project, turn it into a pod and be able to schedule it where I can get more than one Minecraft server. So my kids can have different realms. Does that sound like a, a challenge worthy of, of me? It's too easy, man. It's too easy. We got to go for We got to go deeper. Too easy, man. If, I mean, I don't know about trying to do all this on FreeBSD, dude. Like, FreeBSD is cool, but it sounds like you got a family. I think you should spend more time like playing Minecraft with your family than compiling software on FreeBSD. <laughs> 
I think it's actually pretty easy from what I'm seeing, but I'll, I'll let you know. Um, so how about this? Any reading? We always love to hear what other people are reading and learning from so that we can share it with everybody else. Is there any recent reading or, or even uh, publishment that you've done that uh, you think you'd like to share with other people? Yeah, so I'm working on a Kubernetes book, Kubernetes Up and Running with O'Reilly. Um, you're about nine draft chapters in. Um, I'll be wrapping that book up by the end of the year. But the current rough cut from O'Reilly, people find it really useful. I made it tutorial style going out. So every chapter, there's hands-on activities for you to kind of learn the concepts and dig in. And um, I guess outside of tech, I don't know, man. For some reason, I've been gravitating to a lot of this minimalism stuff. And I think it helps me remain pragmatic. When everyone else is all hyped up, I look through the hype and just kind of stay focused on being pragmatic. So I think people should just focus on that. Like step into this at the level that you're ready for. Do not compare yourself to every other company doing these things. Take what's right for you and celebrate those victories as they come. Man, I had to leave a little silence after that because it was so awesome. So Mic drop. That was all. Yeah, you did. You dropped all of our mics at once. Um, Kelsey, thank you so much. Uh, you know, on behalf of the Hot Isle, uh, I'm Brian Carpenter. I'm Brent Piotti. And Kelsey, we can't thank you enough for joining us. That was awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.